begin today in our study together of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, when we gathered together, we started this series that we're calling Hashtag Truth. And if you weren't here, just to kind of give you the idea behind that, we talked about the fact that we have a tendency to boil things down to, to memorable phrases. We, we take things that we've heard and we, we have a tendency to reduce them down to, to little tidbits, maybe sound bites, perhaps even hashtags that, that are catchy and memorable, and, and those take the place of the fuller idea. The problem is that in that process of reducing, in that process of making memorable, a lot of times we're left with only a partial picture of the full truth. We talked last week how Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount speaks to that tendency in us to reduce things to what's memorable. In particularly, he addresses our, our reductions in the law. God's law given through Moses on Mount Sinai, God's law is a reflection of his character, a glimpse into who he is. And when we begin reducing that law into just memorable catchphrases, we end up not with a full portrait of God's character, even not, not even a full portrait as so far as it can be painted by the law. We end up with just a caricature, emphasizing some things and, and leaving other things entirely out. And so Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, I am here to fulfill the law and the prophets, to take your character, or to take your caricature and begin filling in some of those missing details. And so it was that Jesus started with the first and most famous commandments. You shall not murder. We notice that Jesus does not set aside that commandment. Murder is still wrong. Instead, he refocuses our attention, not just on the act of murder itself, but the attitudes and disposition from which murder comes. It's just as dangerous, Jesus says, just as dangerous to your spiritual life and well-being, just as dangerous as murder is that fire-building, grudge-bearing kind of anger, especially when we let that smoldering anger begin to grow into into treating other people with contempt or, or worse still, treating them like they are not or never even could be a part of God's family. After delivering that instruction, it's almost as if Jesus says, and while we're talking about the commandments, why don't we just go on to the next one? After dealing with the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, in our text for today, he goes to the seventh. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you have your Bibles, if you have them open, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Kids, were you listening? 
Did you hear the scandal in there? Did you hear when Jesus talked about the scandal? Okay, we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Be listening. Be listening. Jesus starts with that first command. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What exactly is he talking about? Here, this commandment uses a fairly specific, a fairly technical term to describe a fairly specific action. That word adultery in both the Old and New Testaments refers to sexual intercourse with someone who is married to someone else. That's what adultery means. Sexual intercourse with someone that is married to someone else. Not just any extramarital intercourse. A marriage, a marriage must be involved for it to count as adultery. Add to that the Old Testament practice of polygamy. And in Judaism, the range of prohibited intercourse becomes even smaller. And there's no indication in Scripture that polygamy was condoned or even commanded by God. It was not part of His design or intention, but that was the practice of the people. And since in Judaism a man could marry any number of women, it was impossible for him, even if he was married, to commit adultery so long as the woman with whom he slept wasn't married. Because after all, even if he was married, he could just marry another wife and add her to the family. So, so this idea of adultery shrinks even farther in the mind of the people. Then you go to the Midrash, the, the commentary, the interpretation of the law by those who would later become the teachers of the law and Pharisees. In the Midrash, there is the further explanation that it has to be, it has to be a marriage before Yahweh. It has to be an Israelite marriage. Marriage outside of Yahweh's sight isn't really marriage, according to the Midrash. And so, to count as adultery, the marriage that was broken had to be an Israelite marriage. There was no adultery if you slept with a Gentile's wife. And so the, the concept of adultery keeps shrinking over time as they reduce it to this hashtag, thou shalt not commit adultery. And you can see as this command shrinks in the minds of the people, the character of God painted by that commandment becomes blurrier and blurrier and blurrier. God is a God of covenant faithfulness. God is a God who keeps His promises. Yet this commandment on adultery keeps meaning less and less and less in the minds of the people. So Jesus arrives on the stage of history. And Jesus says, if you think this hashtag truth, this, this thou shalt not commit adultery that you have in mind when you read that command is the full picture of God's character, you have a distorted picture of God, of who He is and what He desires for His people. And He begins to fill in some of the details left out by that shrinking of the law. Notice, again, with me, that he does not set aside the command. Jesus does not say adultery is fine, go ahead if you want to, have at it. Adultery is still wrong. 
However, like the teaching on murder, Jesus seeks to address the prohibition itself and push through the prohibition to begin to address the attitudes and the dispositions that lead to that wrong behavior. You've heard that it was said, Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's Jesus warning against here? Here it might be helpful to break that down. I tell you, anyone who looks on a woman, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully. The NIV there has an adverb. In the Greek that Matthew uses to translate Jesus' teaching on this subject, there isn't an adjective. There is instead a prepositional phrase. It starts with the preposition pros. Pros means to or toward. And he couples that preposition with an infinitive, a verb form. And when that construction appears in the Bible, uh, it speaks towards purpose. It speaks to intent. Toward, as in with an eye, you do something with an eye toward. I tell you the truth, anyone who looks at a woman with an eye toward, with an eye toward what? Epithumesai is the word he uses. Translated here as with an eye towards lust. What does that word epithumeo mean? means to desire. It means to desire something strongly. And it doesn't just have to be sexual. In Matthew 13, it talks about the desire that the prophets and the righteous men of ages past had to see the things that Jesus was doing. The prophets longed to see what the disciples were front row witnesses to. And they longed, they epithumeoed to see those things. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about a son who wanders away from home and squanders his inheritance and eventually starving, destitute, hungry, finds a job slopping hogs. And he's out there on the farm slopping the hogs and he, he longs, he epithumeos, he desires deeply to eat the slop that he's feeding to the pigs. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus himself epithumeos. In Luke 22, Jesus gathers with his disciples for a final meal together before his crucifixion. And he describes the desire he has, the epithumeo, the deep desire he's had to share this Passover meal with his followers. So you see, in the Bible, epithumeo does not just refer to lust as we tend to think of it, it, refer, it can refer to sexual desire, but it refers to any strong desire that someone feels. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you, anyone who looks at a woman with an eye toward desire. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that looking itself is not a sin. 
many of us grew up with the idea that we weren't supposed to see beauty. Noticing beauty, that's, that's not a sin. Just, does, just noticing, it's not bad. It's also not desire itself. After all, Jesus desired. He says, I, I've epithumeo to share this Passover meal. It's not, it's not attraction that is a sin. How broken would that be for God to create us with the ability to be attracted and then say attraction is evil? Something more than all of those. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? How do you know that desire isn't a sin? The Bible says so. If you still have your Bibles open, turn to James chapter 1 with me. James is a letter, a, a book, it's very small, more like a letter. It's a letter written by James, Jesus' own brother. James writes this letter to the church in general, and in that opening chapter, James chapter 1, he begins to address temptation and sin and, and, and where exactly it is that temptation becomes a sin. Have your Bible open. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. James says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, and last time I read, the words I read looked exactly like the words in your Bible. You notice this time it might not. This time I read not out of the NIV like I normally do. That Those, that, those verses were from the New American Standard Bible. Hopefully by now you've been around me enough, you've been trained, you should be asking, anytime you hear a preacher change translations in the middle of his sermon or her sermon, you ought to be thinking to yourself, why did they do that? Sometimes it's sometimes it's for a good reason, and I think this time it's for a good reason. Sometimes it's for a way to work around what the Bible really says. But you should always notice that when you hear someone preaching. And be aware and ask those questions. Why are we changing translations here? This is one case where I'm doing it on purpose, and I hope you ask yourself that question. Why read it this way rather than the NIV? Because this makes the connection clearer for us. The NIV says we're dragged away by our evil desire. And if you just read evil desire, you might not notice the fact that this is the exact same word in, in James chapter 1 that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 5. Well, almost the same word. Here it's a verb. Or here it's a noun, there it's a verb. But the same word, epithumeo, epithumia. This is the desire he's talking about. This is the desire he's talking about. And James specifically says, it's not the desiring that is the sin. It is, it's when that desire is allowed to conceive that it leads to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Desire gives rise to temptation. Temptation itself is not sin. Only when desire conceives does it birth sin. That's a biblical example demonstrating the truth. How about a theological one? The Church of the Nazarene's Articles of Faith, which are not Scripture, 
they are our best explanation of what we believe in light of what the Bible teaches. It's our summary of what the Bible says and what we understand from the Bible, but it doesn't have the authority Scripture does. But in our articles of faith, we say this about sin. We believe that actual or personal sin is a voluntary violation of a known law of God by a morally responsible person. Actual sin, the article of faith says, pertaining to actions. Actual sin is a voluntary violation of a known law. In other words, sin comes in when there is a decision involved. The sin for which God holds us accountable is the sin that involves a choice. Not the desire, not the temptation. It's when we choose to act on the desire. Back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew. It's not in the looking, it's not in the attraction. But be very careful here. Because it's also not in the action of adultery itself. It's not when you finally cross that final final threshold and, and go the full way into sin. It's when you choose to keep looking with the eye towards desire. So when we make a decision to seek out in order to fuel, to feed the desire in us, in many ways it's much like the sermon from last week. It's not the, it's not the reaction, it's not the flash, it's not the response of anger, it's, it's the decision to keep fueling that fire. It's the decision to keep feeding that desire. That's where the sin lies that Jesus warns about. It's a trap. It's a scandal, kids. It's a scandal. Beware. See it so that you can avoid it. So what are we supposed to do about it, Jesus says? Simple. Gouge it out and cut it off. Right? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Here Jesus uses that word that I talked to the kids about. Causes you to stumble. Scandalizo. Acts as a scandal. The stone of offense. The stumbling block. The trigger to the trap. James says temptation is like a hunter. It's looking to trap you like some kind of prey. It seeks to capture you. It seeks to carry you off. And it uses desire as the bait to lure you into the trap. Jesus says here, identify the trigger and get rid of it. Even if, even if it's as dear to you as your right eye, even if it is as dear to you as your right hand. Identify the scandal. Find the trigger. Get rid of it. It might be a place. It might be a place. 
Some of us make poor decisions when we show up at the wrong place. Maybe we need to avoid that place. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes we make poor choices. We follow the crowd. We need to adjust the crowd we're with. Sometimes it's an attitude. A sense of entitlement. A sense that we have been wronged. A sense that we somehow deserve. Sometimes it's a habit. Something we keep going back to. Jesus says, whatever it is that scandalizes you, whatever it is that trips you up, identify the trigger and remove it. Anthony took that advice very seriously. Anthony of Egypt lived a long time ago and a pretty long way from here. Anthony of Egypt was born sometime around 250 A.D. and he lived to the age of 105, so from mid-200s to 300s, two to three centuries after Jesus' teaching on getting rid of the scandal. Anthony grew up as a part of a wealthy family. His mom and dad owned several, a, a lot of land. They were rich, influential people within the little village, the little community in which they lived. And when Anthony was about 20 years old, his parents both died. And Anthony inherited their estate. Anthony was young. Anthony was rich. And Anthony was also reading the Gospel of Matthew, a Gospel in which Jesus encounters a rich young man and gives him some advice. You might know that story. A young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to enter eternal life? And Jesus says, what are the commandments? How do you understand them? And he lists the commandments, and, and the young man says, I've been keeping the commandments. What am I still missing? And, and Jesus says, this one thing you still lack, go and sell everything you own, and and give your possessions to the poor, then come follow me. And as Anthony, as Anthony was reading that passage from Matthew, as Jesus was speaking to that rich young man, he heard Jesus speaking to him. And so he did what Jesus said. He sold his possessions. Started giving away some of the property he owned to the neighbors and other people in his village started selling what possessions could be liquidated, giving the proceeds of that to the poor. Pretty soon he had nothing left. And Anthony committed himself to a life of poverty because he wanted to follow Jesus. Anthony was reading the Gospel of Matthew. He came across this passage as well about finding what scandalizes you and get rid of it. And Anthony committed himself to removing himself from any sort of stumbling stone. So Anthony became a hermit. He left his home, left his village, headed out first to a graveyard living among the tombs. And after that, he, he found his way to an old abandoned Roman fort on the very edge of the desert there in Egypt where he lived. And there Anthony lived alone as a hermit. He became popularly known as the father of monks. He is... He is the most famous early of the desert fathers who sought to remove himself from temptation and, and head out to nowhere. Out there living 
in a Roman fortress in the middle of nowhere. You'd think he had removed every stumbling block from his life. Certainly every sexual stumbling block. I mean, who, after all, was there living out there all by himself in the middle of the wilderness? Who was there for him to lust after? Yet Satan did not give up on Anthony. Satan, in fact, used every kind of desire he could come up with to try to lure Anthony away from his commitment and away from his path of obedience. Years later, another author would tell the story of Anthony's life and, and would describe the way that Satan tempted him there in his hermitage, reminding him of the wealth that he'd left behind, reminding him of his sister, the only relative he had left back in the world, reminding him of the lavish meals that he used to enjoy when his mother and father were still alive, reminding him of the comforts of the home that he'd left behind. Stephen said that one night, Satan appeared to Anthony as a woman, seeking to lure him into sexual sin and away from his commitment to God. Anthony had done all of the eye-gouging and hand-cutting off you can do. Uh, Anthony had removed himself from every temptation, yet out in the middle of nowhere, temptation still sought him out. I think Anthony learned something there in the desert. Ultimately, the biggest scandal in our life isn't something external. Ultimately, the biggest stumbling block in our life isn't something out there that we can cut off or something that we can gouge out. The ultimate stumbling block in our lives is the sinful heart itself. And that's not something we can remove on our own. That's the kind of cleansing that God and God alone can do. And what Anthony did out there in the wilderness was he did spiritual warfare with Satan, persisting, fasting, and praying, asking God to cleanse his heart and his mind until the scandal inside him was removed. That he might be made whole. It's not an accident that centuries after Anthony lived and died, a young man in England by the name of John Wesley began reading the stories of the Desert Fathers. He was moved by the story of Anthony in the desert and began to understand himself the desire that God has not just to forgive us of our guilt, but to cleanse us from every scandal. God wants to do that in us if we'd let him.